Hi, this is Huang Zhenyu, along with my co-host Ken Walcox, <laughs> welcoming you to another episode of China 411. Today, the topic will be on energy. And we have, as our guest, Andrew Chang, the founding partner of 1955. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your background. I've known you for years, but I can't remember every step of the way, so. Sure. Uh, well, I... Uh, uh, I've been in venture capital for more than 10 years now, uh, the first five years with Lightspeed Venture Partners, uh, more recently right. five years as a general partner at Coastal Ventures. And through this entire period, I've been investing in what I call save the world technologies. Uh, I had the very lucky opportunity at Lightspeed to help them launch uh, the clean tech practice more than 10 years ago. Uh, and then later started to look at newer areas like genomics, personalized medicine, education, uh, and a bit in food and agriculture. Uh, so during that time, I was able to help the firm build out its practice areas, and uh, Lightspeed invested in companies like Nest Labs, Solazyme, Solar Edge, uh, and a number of other companies that went on to do very well. Uh, and five years ago, was lucky enough to join Vinod Kosla uh, as one of the six partners managing that firm, which, uh, as both of you know, uh, is one of the world's largest investors in a lot of these save the world categories like energy, food, ag, health, uh, education, etc. Uh, so during that time, I had this opportunity to help a lot of our companies uh, look beyond our shores here and find partners in other parts of the world that are really desperate for these types of save the world technologies. And so um, we were able to help a number of our portfolio companies uh, enter China, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, other countries in, in that part of the world where if you're not solving these issues, people die. So give us a little color, a, a, a couple of companies that you remember that you really think highly of, where you really felt jazzed about what the company was doing. Yeah, so one of the companies that I continue to be on the board of uh, is called Lanzatech. Um, Lanzatech has developed a technology that can convert uh, waste gas, uh, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, that comes out of different types of industrial factories biochemically into valuable fuels and chemicals. So essentially, they're able to cap the smokestack and turn that, that toxic gas that is polluting the air into something that's economically valuable. Uh, so this company uh, has, was actually originated in New Zealand and started to work with some of the steel mills there to convert their dirty gases into this valuable end product. Uh, and over the last several years, we've been able to help them build partnerships in China. Uh, mm -hmm. with companies like Bao Steel, Capital Steel, which are major, major steel manufacturers there that are creating a ton of carbon and pollution into the air that the governments are uh, giving them a lot of pressure around. So uh, by being able to set up joint ventures with companies like these, Lanzatech has been able to uh, pilot their technology in China, get significant amounts of funding to test this technology and prove to the world that uh, this technology works. And now we've had companies like uh, Siemens, Mitsui, SK, ArcelorMittal that have all been working with uh, Lanzatech as a result of a lot of the early activity they were able to do in China with the support of some of these large players in China. So that's a company that I think has the potential to change the world. Let's stick with this one for just a minute. Sure. And, um, how much pressure is, is, the, how, is the Chinese government really serious about uh, limiting this kind of pollution? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about um, uh, one of the societal issues that China faces is you have um, significant pollution in not just Beijing, but a lot of the cities there that um, are causing people to develop a lot of 
things like lung cancer, uh, asthma, different um, pulmonary issues. And so uh, I think the statistics are close to 2 million people die every year prematurely of air pollution-related disorders, uh, wow. according to the World Health Organization. So this that's, is in China? Or this world? is in China. In this China, is in China. Yeah. Um, and for all of the press that Beijing gets for the pollution that they have, uh, if you rank all of the cities in China, Beijing is probably number 12 or number 13. There are other cities that are much, much more polluted where children have to stay home from school because of the, the, the uh, air quality problems. So if you add all of that up, a lot of the governments have no choice but to uh, put pressure on some of the large corporates that are creating a lot of the air pollution problem. China has routinely spent um, between 50 and 100 billion dollars a year into clean energy related initiatives. Uh, you have a lot of regulation um, in, in trying to foster development of better uh, practices, both at the central government level as well as the provincial level. Um, and you also have a lot of executives that are starting to understand um, the importance of this and are creating a lot of initiatives within their companies to be able to spur on innovation and attract technology from other parts of the world to help solve the problem. So it's an interesting storm, a lot of, uh, it's a perfect storm of, of activity right now that's making China a very interesting place for anything that's related to uh, clean energy development. So how does that, and this is kind of a broad question, probably hard to answer, but in broad brush terms, how does that compare with the U.S.? Is, would, should one infer the problems bigger in China or the U.S. is less serious about solving its problem. Well, I think that um, you know, the, obviously, in the U.S., the uh, one of the great things that we have here is a, a research and development apparatus at the university, lab, and corporate level that is unparalleled. So there's a lot of great technology that's being developed around these uh, these areas of sustainable energy. Um, but if you go outside, not so much today, but usually in California, blue skies, white clouds, uh, people are jogging. Uh, cycling on Sand Hill Road, uh, all over the U.S. It's just, the, the environmental condition is not quite as severe, although folks will talk about some of the long-term problems. Um, I think in places like China or Indonesia or India, the problem is very acute. It, if you walk outside on certain days, you have to wear a mask, otherwise your lungs are at risk. When a, a baby is leaving the hospital, you have to put a nebulizer on, on the kid, otherwise you're worried that the little lungs that are coming out might get exposed to the air too quickly. So mm. those are not issues that we face here in the United States. And, and in some sense, we, um, dis, a lot of the, the, the drive to solve these issues are more around kind of the longer term issues. Yes, every once in a while there's a wastewater treatment issue that you might need to deal with and you need better membrane technology or whatnot. But it's not a desperate issue. It's not a survival driven issue. And so I think that um, the U.S. is uh, a great place to find a lot of the, the most exceptional technologies that can solve this on a country scale. But a lot of other countries, and it's not just China, it's India, it's Indonesia, Middle East, Africa, a lot of these other countries have more acute issues that drive the demand for these technologies to, uh, to a level that is perhaps unseen here. But what about this interplay between economic development and having a better environment? How is that working out in China, for example? Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of the incredible growth that we've seen in China has been spurred on by um, industrialized growth that has never been seen in the history of our planet. The economic development in China, in, in a lot of ways, has contributed to the pollution issues that 
by growing as quickly as they had to over the last 20 or 30 years, they had to take advantage of technologies that either were existing or in some cases behind state of the art in order to keep up with that growth. And so uh, probably about five to 10 years ago, uh, the government and a lot of the corporates started to realize that now we actually need to shift gears a bit and figure out how to do this in a sustainable way. Uh, and so I, I think there, there, there definitely is a, uh, uh, the interplay between this economic growth with a lot of the issues that are happening right now. And, and, and that's where, again, it, it, is, it is increasing the level of demand uh, for these newer technologies that can really address these issues. And have you seen most of those technologies being developed outside of China, or is that also happening in China? How is that interplay of technology happening? So I think in China, in, and I, I was there 13 times last year, and this year broke a personal record by visiting four times in the span of five weeks. So I've had a lot of time spent uh, in China. And I speak Mandarin, and I speak Cantonese, and I can, I can transact locally. Um, when I spend time there, I am always amazed by the level of entrepreneurism and uh, the level of innovative activity that's happening there. I mean, there's no question that folks really underestimate the level of entrepreneurial activity and innovation happening in China. Um, all that being said, um, when, it, when, when you're talking about internet, social media, software, and e-commerce, there are a lot of areas where, in my opinion, China's already surpassed other parts of the world in terms of the speed of customer acquisition, the new types of models that they apply. But when you talk about fundamental science and things that are the, uh, uh, the culmination of 30 years of fundamental research in pick your energy category, right? Battery storage, uh, uh, solar, LEDs, nuclear. When you talk about that, China doesn't quite have the history or uh, the, uh, the network of universities and that academic apparatus that is uh, creating as much of that as in some other parts of the world, which have been doing it for you know, hundreds of years. So I think that's one of the things that uh, explains why um, on a routine basis in Silicon Valley, we get delegations from China coming here to uh, try to hear a bit more about what's the latest, what's the future of agriculture, what's the future of energy, what's the future of healthcare, uh, and try to understand you know, what the state of the art of technology is here and, and try to find ways to collaborate here. And, and I think that's one thing that, that the U.S. Do, and, and, and places in Europe, Israel, uh, other places that, are, that have this kind of fundamental science R&D engine, um, they, we, they're still in, in many of these areas still as an advantage. Um, but uh, but that, that advantage is, uh, is, is shrinking. Interesting. So relative to that question, is that advantage shrinking? One of the things that we hear um, off and on again is that there's more um, unanimity of opinion uh, on the part of the Chinese government around the seriousness of these environmental issues. Of course, in Washington, we have people at, at all, on all parts of the spectrum. There are people who totally deny that uh, global warming is a phenomenon that is induced by um, human activity, and uh, some even deny that it's taking place. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got strong environmentalists. But I hear in China that the, uh, the government in Beijing is more of the same opinion. Is that a correct assessment, or what would you more say? More of the same opinion? You mean in terms of the unanimity? Yeah, they're, they're more on the same page with each other. Well, I think, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the debate that happens here about climate change or no climate change and um, again, a lot of these environmental issues that create dissension from the two different parties or however many parties you think we have. Mm -hmm. um, I think in China, the big difference is, again, because of the 
what's happening in society where you can see the results of whatever climate change or pollution related issues, they can see it day to day. Mm -hmm. And their citizens are seeing it day to day. And because of the proliferation of uh, wireless internet and, and things like you know the YouTube of China or whatnot, people can see it on their devices every day what's happening in the rest of their country. I believe that creates a level of unanimity of opinion that is harder to replicate here because again people aren't dying here of air pollution related disease. You don't have multiples of San Francisco's population falling over every year because they're breathing the air. Mm. So as a result, whether it's at the citizen level or at the government level, there's a lot of room for debate as to what is causing these issues. Whereas in China, again, this is a this is a much more acute problem. Now, it's interesting you kind of mentioned this collaboration model, right? It's really kind of traditional. American technology use it in China. Are there other ways of collaborations that you've seen? Uh, between U.S. and China yeah. or just in general? Yeah. In the U.S. and China, especially around the areas of energy? Well, you know, I think, um, uh, I, I, you know, in there, I think very broadly, um, you know, I was, I was having dinner with uh, a former uh, Secretary of State who I respect a great deal, who said to me that um, uh, you know, China and the U.S. are more codependent on each other than any two countries in the history of humanity, based on her view of history. Um, and I, uh, it resonated with me very well because the, the next statement was, well, you, we better get it right. Um, and it's true. I think these two countries are incredibly powerful nations that have the ability to shape the, 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 the course of history for the world. And if they don't work together in the right way, um, it will cause a lot of issues that we can only begin to imagine right now. And so the energy and environmental piece seems to be a very interesting olive branch on both sides. Because on the US side, a lot of this technology is being developed, but it's harder and harder to fund these companies and commercialize these technologies. On the China side, they need these technologies. And so it's a very natural collaboration point. So I think um, uh, it, this is an important nexus point for collaboration between US and China. And in some sense, I feel a really strong responsibility because uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have grown up in both cultures and be able to speak the languages on both sides. And, uh, and so I feel like it's my duty to be able to uh, use what I know about these types of technologies to bring the countries closer together. Well, you say you grew up in both cultures. Can you expand on that? Where did you grow up? And yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in Chinatown, New York. Uh, mm -hmm. to a pair of immigrant parents who didn't speak English. Um, they both left China during the Cultural Revolution. What uh, part? Uh, they were both from southern China, mm -hmm. so uh, in uh, the Shenzhen province. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, uh, so they, they left China uh, in the 60s, and uh, I uh, was lucky to grow up in an environment where I, they only spoke to me in Chinese. Um, and uh, most of the people around were, of course, uh, immigrants as well from the same region of, uh, of China. So I moved out to suburban Philadelphia when I was five, but luckily those five years were very foundational. And uh, I think, you know, growing up uh, in, in, in suburban Philadelphia, which is a very different universe, mm. um, I, I was able to, to, you know, learn English there and, and, and maintain both of my, uh, uh, my languages and cultures throughout. And, and I think um, the time that I spent at Lightspeed and Kosla really helped magnify that because with um, at Kosla, by virtue of being uh, 
one of the largest investors in clean technology. We drew a lot of attention from uh, a lot of the Chinese, a lot of the Chinese uh, corporates and, and and groups that were coming here to learn about that technology. And so, um, that really is what helped build a, a brand for myself uh, in this area that enabled the, the launch of 1955 and being able to now create a strategy that is very dedicated to investing in U.S. and European technology that can solve the great challenges of China and the rest of the developing world. And so a lot of these categories that, that I deal with at 1955, like energy and environment, food and agriculture, uh, healthcare technologies, where there's a fundamental science element behind it, um, really take advantage of my training as a venture capitalist with two great firms like Lightspeed and Kosla, but also this bicultural element that I have that allows me to, on one hand, appreciate uh, the, the, uh, the technology advantages that I've seen from many years being in Silicon Valley with the, uh, the demands that Asia and China face in these areas, and then ultimately in the transaction itself, I can communicate as a founder or a chairman or a board member with the Chinese side without a translator. And that is a, a, a very unique set of circumstances that uh, uh, have led me to be able to, uh, to launch this firm. It's interesting, you mentioned that the, in the amount of capital in the U.S. for these technologies are diminishing. Why, why is that? So, um, you know, it's uh, uh, a fairly, fairly well-known phenomenon that uh, venture capitalists in the uh, in the mid 2000s uh, were very aggressive in you investing. They in overinvested and now they're pulling back. Right. On so clean tech. Right. So example. phase one of clean tech, there was a lot of uh, a lot of VCs, a lot of PE firms that went very aggressively into the area. Uh, you had the financial crisis that you know really uh, slowed debt flows. Uh, a lot of these projects were very difficult to finance, and a lot of the projects didn't work. Right, and and then you had a lot of different factors that led to these companies not being very successful. And so, uh, I think if you look at you know where we are today in the venture capital cycle, and of course every industry, whether it's IT or biotech or enterprise software, goes through these hype and fall cycles. Uh, we happen to be in a very strong hype cycle for enterprise software and and, and internet. Uh, and a down cycle for clean tech, where very few VCs are really systematically investing in these areas. And so if you're an entrepreneur today in the United States, um, and you're, whether you're an early stage, fresh out of MIT or Stanford lab startup, or you're a company that has survived kind of the last four or five years and are trying to look for that scale up capital, it's very difficult to find through the traditional channels here in the US. Um, and so, uh, so more and more of these companies now have to, in my opinion, be more uh, open-minded in thinking about, well, where, what other types of capital can I attract in order to, to, to survive and win? Uh, and I believe some of this capital will come from Asia. Um, some of it will come from different family offices that are rallying around this. Um, up until the recent election, uh, I would have said that a lot of the corporates have significant budgets around trying to invest in this. Uh, but the traditional flows of Silicon Valley VC or PE firms or, or even hedge funds that are investing in some of these more uh, uh, you know, in commercialization mode clean technologies, I think that has dried up quite a bit. Now, speaking of the election, mm. we know that we're, we're going to have a new president with radically different thoughts on climate change, on energy. And, and what's your thought on what's happening in the U.S.? You know, on the one hand, the U.S. is becoming energy independent. 
We may be a huge exporter, actually, of gas, even oil. And, and now the, the new incoming president is talking about potentially opening up more land for drilling. What, what's your thought there on the energy space in the U.S.? How is that going to really change? The U.S.-China equation, again, um, you know, the president-elect has made some choices around the State Department and the ambassador that shows some signals as to where he uh, is thinking in these issues. Um, that, I believe, will have a very important impact, again, on how much collaboration happens and how much energy, you know, technology transfer or in the solar markets or other markets where tariffs can be um, uh, a major issue. A lot of that remains to be seen. But in my humble opinion, my hope is that the president-elect realizes that um, there is an incredible amount of innovation that's happening in these areas. And if the government pulls back their support of this type of fundamental science innovation, it will cut off the biggest advantage that the United States has over the rest of the world in the future furtherment of these types of technologies. I believe that it's important to have good relationships between the two countries because it's, it's a very important economic value proposition on both sides. Well, speaking of conflict, on the one hand, you have the largest polluter in the world whose standard of living is still, you know, it's still increasing rapidly, which means more consumption of energy. On the other hand, you have the largest polluter per capita. And there's an American way that needs to maintain a certain level of standards in terms of energy consumption. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to increase. What are the conflict areas in this space? The conflict areas? In, uh, in, the, in the space of you know, energy, in the space of environment. Because here, you do hear a lot about, well, China's polluting a lot, right? Why isn't China doing more? Um, in China, of course, there's always the thought that you know, the U.S. is imposing certain standards on China because China is still developing. And that we pollute on a per capita basis even Ten more. times more, right? Yeah. And why should you spend a, the past 100 years polluting and now that we're developing, we don't get the same opportunity, right? Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of potential opportunities for conflict. Mm -hmm. where, where do you see those potential areas of conflict? Yeah, you know, I think um, uh, there, there's a lot of that kind of uh, discussion, not, not just U.S. versus China, but also uh, with other developing nations that are, are a bit earlier than where China is right now. And everyone's talking about, well, what is my, uh, what kind of license can I get to pollute for a while while mm -hmm. I boost my industrialization? India is somewhere in between. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, I, I think that the fact that so many world leaders have come to the table, uh, whether it's in Paris or, uh, or even before, to talk about different types of targets that the globe should hit. I personally believe that that's a great sign that folks are starting to move a bit away from um, how much did you do, how much did I do, and a lot of the sort of he said, she said kind of activity. Posturing is that kind away. of posturing mm -hmm. that it hasn't gone away. But the fact that many of these leaders have been willing to come to the table and you see a lot of this type of forward momentum, I think is very important. Um, I think a lot of the work that the UN has done to bring a lot of these groups together, um, I think at the G20, a lot of the accountability that people are trying to hold each other to, I think is all healthy. Um, what President Obama and um, President Xi uh, about almost two years ago now in Beijing announced in terms of the two nations' goals to, uh, uh, to car cap carbon emissions. All of these things have shown that there's a lot of this 
this conflict that is starting to uh, fade away in, in lieu of uh, a more global view on how we can improve things. And mm -hmm. so we can't lose that. I think that that, that momentum took decades to be able to build, to be able to bring China to the world stage and make these types of announcements. And you know, you, you, you know the Chinese culture better than I do. That is a very important development in the history of um, the environmental uh, uh, crusade, that, that China is willing to come to the table and make very specific goals public on the world stage. And so I think that this conflict will continue to exist. People will continue to argue on these elements, but I think there's been significant progress that's been made, and we need to be able to take advantage of that. And a lot of the reasons behind it, I think, are what we've been talking about in this whole conversation, that at the end of the day, there are serious issues that are, that are there as a result of all this industrialization in China. And whether you want to talk about how many years we... Uh, well, how many years could we be a polluter and you guys have been doing this for so long? At the end of the day, the country faces an acute issue that the government is trying to address today, um, and not just in China. India has similar issues. Indonesia has similar issues. Malaysia has similar issues. And a lot of these countries are, are, are recognizing that they need to, they need to start moving forward and, and make, make investments to address these things. Um, and so that conflict, I think, hopefully more and more will become a bit of a sideshow. I mean, you're an expert in technology and technology transfer, but what about specifically in the area of technology transfer? The fear that once the technology gets to China, China learns it, they'll no longer need the U.S. or the companies in the U.S. Yeah, well, I think that is an issue uh, that, that transcends it's, nationality. It's much broader, right? right? It's much, much broader, much broader but issue. specifically yes. with the two countries, you know, there's Absolutely. been a lot of talk, a lot of fear yeah. on both sides. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the, the fundamental things about the way that 1955 looks at the world is we're, we're trying to work with entrepreneurs that are developing a fundamental science breakthrough or an innovation. Um, and as a result, the technologies that they have, on average, are going to be harder to replicate or harder to copy than a software application or a social media app or an e-commerce website, right? So, they're, so at the basic level, if you, find, if you have technologies that are more difficult to replicate, that's one, that's one sort of minimum requirement in my opinion. I think the next step is being able to be smart about how you do that type of IP deployment. So um, having technology where there's a certain hardware component, a certain software component, a controls component that can be separated, or maybe the manufacturing process has multiple steps that you can have separated so that no single person knows the entire thing. Or you have a certain part of the IP that it's like Coca-Cola's uh, secret recipe. Part of it is done outside of uh, the target country like China, and then it's, it's brought in to complete the assembly or the process. So there are a lot of tactical and smart ways that you can do it to continue to protect your IP. Um, I think a third part of it is to work with partners that you trust and partners that have more at stake than stealing your single technology, meaning that in, in game theory, that it's a multiple game type of approach, right? Where if they, if they ruin the relationship as a result of stealing one technology, they will not be able to work with companies Access two, three, four, and five. And so I think that part is also a very important art and element to being able to do this in the right way. But can I say as an investor or a board member that you know, working with one of the partners in China or Indonesia or Malaysia is free of risk around this? Absolutely not. But the question is, if it come down, comes down to you having a high probability of being able to manage your IP, but you also are getting a significant 
capital inflow or an ability to survive and bring your technology to life, that becomes an interesting equation that I think every entrepreneur has to weigh when they're working in China. And I think one thing that is not covered enough in the press is the situations where an American company steals your IP or a European company steals your IP. And there, there have been many situations as a VC where um, I, and, you know, I kind of harken back to the Silicon Valley TV show on HBO where, of course, you know, one of the, uh, the, the enemy empire company, of course, stole the IP of the, the company that uh, uh, was the fledgling startup, right? And that happens all the time. So it's not just that, that uh, the, the Asian companies are geared up to do this. Yeah. Um, and, and I think entrepreneurs need to recognize that. And so in the end, you have to make a good, sound economic decision of is working with this partner worth the risk, because there's always risk working with any company, um, versus the benefit to my company of having um, this type of capital, this market, this type of survival-driven need yeah. that can float the boat. Now, I'm sure this question is going to be interesting for you, Ken, mm -hmm. which is the idea that there's, there's now an increasing number of Chinese companies, entities coming in and acquiring technologies in the U.S. and bringing them back. Mm -hmm. right? Instead of waiting for them to come to China, they're coming actively here. What's your thought there? Um, I think that a lot of that is around some of the government initiatives. So there's a lot of capital being put into um, different types of M&A. Uh, for global technology acquisition. So that is absolutely happening. Uh, and um, uh, it remains to be seen what, what will happen as a result of some of the recent regulatory changes because China now has, on one hand, they want to uh, acquire technologies from around the world, but they also are trying you to stem capital, capital outflows. Yeah. Right? So the, the, the recent regulatory uh, conditions that were, that were talked about or, or made, made more public after Thanksgiving uh, is going to put a significant uh, slowdown on that type of activity. But it remains to be seen how it will unfold. But I think that um, uh, that, that type of activity is happening and uh, there's been a lot of resistance both on the U.S. and European side to a lot of those acquisitions. Um, I think in, uh, in, in October there was a, a Financial Times headline that, that talked about the tens of billions of, of acquisitions that were blocked by the Western powers. Uh, and so I think, you know, from the 1955 perspective, I think it underscores the need for partners on both sides to have a layer of trust in order to make these transactions uh, economically a good decision. So I've seen many acquisitions that were blocked by boards on the pure fear alone that it's a group that I don't really know, I don't really understand, and I don't have a cultural or lingual affinity with them, and so let's block the acquisition. Or let's not take the economic deal that is good for our shareholders, uh, and instead we'll take money from an American or a European company. Uh, and in, in some cases, that is not the right fiduciary decision, but because of this bias or this fear or anxiety, it happens. Um, in other cases, it's the right decision. You block it because they're a predatory force. They're, they're not going to do right by your shareholders, and they're not going to uh, do a good thing with your technology. So I think one of the things that 1955 hopes to be as as a group that understands both sides is to be a, a true partner to the companies or the entrepreneurs on this side where if an acquiring partner does come along that we're able to help really understand well are they a good partner is this a high likelihood acquisition is this a valuable thing to our shareholders and make good a, a good fiduciary decision because 
there's that trust that's built up on both sides in doing that kind of transaction. And so I think that that is a very important feature that needs to happen if these types of M&A deals are going to um, continue to be successful or if there are going to be good transactions, high quality transactions. And that's still a real big gap uh, in what I've seen over the last 10 years. You know what? We're running out of time, and I think that we, this is a very positive note that we could end on if you're um, that far along. Absolutely. Although, one quick question at the end. As an investor, you invest, you're investing not only in, in the present but in the future. Share with us really quickly a few areas in the energy space that you're really excited about. Sure. Uh, well, I'm very much investing for the future. I mean, it's, it's about reinventing um, reinventing a lot of these industries and in some ways reinventing venture capital to be able to support the investment in a lot of these industries because the current model uh, doesn't quite work uh, and, and I'm lucky to be a part of uh, some newer groups like the Breakthrough Energy Ventures which uh, Bill Bill Gates and my old partner Vinod Kosla just announced a uh, billion dollars that will be going towards uh, investing in the long term of these types of energy developments or uh, uh, Cyclotron Road up in Berkeley a group of ex-DOE people that are creating a new model for incubating these technologies so I'm very proud to be a, a part of that group of folks trying to reinvent the way to invest in these areas. Um, some of the areas that I find really exciting um, you know, funny enough, these categories are not too different from those that I've been looking at over the last five to ten years because more improvement is needed. Um, so in the solar area, we were looking at a lot of technologies that are uh, taking advantage of new science to be able to boost efficiency of existing solar farm installations by uh, a significant margin. Um, we're looking at different types of technologies that are um, very aggressive in using biochemical methods to do carbon reduction. Uh, to reduce the issues that lead to climate change or uh, reduce air pollution. Uh, we're looking at new types of platforms that will take the current regime for LED uh, lighting and manufacturing to yet another level so that the energy efficiency benefits that you get from LEDs are coupled with uh, much better cost and performance. Um, we're looking at different technologies that are converting other types of waste, whether it's waste plastic, waste water, uh, waste uh, agricultural waste, into other types of valuable materials so that you're, you're able to um, really harness a lot of those types of uh, end products in a, in a way that um, uh, is, is beneficial. So waste to value is in, in another area that we're looking at uh, quite a bit. So there's a lot of exciting things that are happening in the energy industry that I think um, need to be nurtured, need to be invested in, and uh, I feel a responsibility to uh, to keep uh, keep doing this and, and 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 give these companies and entrepreneurs a shot to win. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. That's another episode of China 411. See you in the future.